And now, from the Room 111 Studios, it's Hacking Engagement with James Sternovich. Well, hey there, listener, and welcome back to the Hacking Engagement Podcast. I think most teachers have their theories on how they can best help kids achieve. I know I do. <laughs> well, sometimes it's good to hear what scientists have to say about helping kids achieve. Now, the genesis of this episode was an experience my wife and I had back in early June. We went to a PD session at Columbus State Community College. And before the breakout sessions, they had this keynote address, which sometimes is good, sometimes isn't so hot. But I can tell you that at this PD session, the keynote address was the most impactful thing that I witnessed. Two women came up to the podium. One is Dr. Megan Smith. The other is Dr. Cindy Wooldridge. These two ladies are half of a team called the Learning Scientists, are Dr. Yana Weinstein and Dr. Carolina Cooper-Tetzel. Out of these four ladies, Dr. Weinstein is the only one that I haven't interacted with, so if you're listening, Yana Weinstein, hopefully someday you and I will meet. (laughs) What these women have done is very important. They have created a website, a user-friendly website, that all teachers can utilize to help their students achieve. I'm going to suggest something. At the end of this introduction pause this episode, go to the Learning Scientist website, and watch the eight-minute overview video. Then listen to the remainder of the episode where I interview some of these ladies, and it'll be much richer. If you don't do that at the end of the episode, at least go to my show notes, where you can see lots of links that'll take you to their website so you can see just how powerful it is, what the potential that's there. One thing that I want to emphasize is... I interviewed Dr. Megan Smith and Dr. Cooper Tetzel in this episode. Dr. Cooper Tetzel lives in the UK, and my Skype connection with her is not the greatest. I apologize for that, but the message is very strong. (laughs) Buckle up, man. You're going to love this episode. Hey, so get this, listener. My publisher contacts me and says, I love the way hacking engagement is selling. How about doing 50 more? (laughs) I was all over it like a cheap suit. So the name of the book is Hacking Engagement Again, 50 Teacher Tools That Will Make Students Love Your Class. And it's going to be available on Amazon's virtual shelves in the late summer of 2017. In the meantime, if you're looking for more teacher empowerment resources, as always, visit hacklearning.org. Now let's get back to the solutions part of the Hacking Engagement Podcast. So here we are in the Room 111 studios uh, in mid-July, and I got to tell you this little story. My wife and I went to a professional development session in Columbus, Ohio at Columbus State Community College five weeks ago. And the keynote speaker was a lady by the name of Dr. Megan Smith and her friend. And Megan, how are you, by the way? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) And your friend, Dr. Woolridge, what was her first name? Cindy. Cindy Woolridge. They they gave a presentation. And a lot of times you go to PD sessions, you just kind of sit there and listen and think, okay, I have to just endure this and go to the breakout session. But my wife and I found ourselves drawn in pretty quickly to what they were discussing. 
And I was so compelled at the end of this session that I walked up to Dr. Megan Smith, introduced myself, and I quickly realized I need to have her on her, on my podcast. You remember that, Dr. Megan Smith? I do, yeah. <laughs> How are you doing this morning? <laughs> good, good. And you're speaking to me from Providence, Rhode Island, is that correct? Yes, yes. I have to ask you this question. Total and complete sidebar. Have you ever okay. been to a restaurant called Dolce Vita on uh, the hill in Providence? No, we haven't. But my fiance and I have only lived here for two years, and there's so much food here that <laughs> we we try to go to new places all the time, but there's just always another place. Well, two weeks ago, I was sitting on a Monday afternoon uh, at Dolce Vita eating uh, just a tremendous shrimp scampi. So that's a place you got to try. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm also joined by Dr. Carolina Cooper-Tetzel. Did I say that right, Carolina? That's completely right, yes. But uh, she's not speaking to me from Providence, Rhode Island. She's even further east. You're out in the UK, correct? Exactly. Now, it's I'm, I'm speaking to you. It's 10 o'clock here. It's probably late afternoon there, correct? Yeah, it's 3 a.m. here in Scotland. What time of night does the sun set in Scotland in, on July 11th? Um, 1030. <laughs> and probably a, a couple of weeks ago, it was probably even later. Yeah, it's crazy. I love the summer here because it's light for such a long span of time. Beautiful. But then in the winter, in the winter, it backfires because then the sun sets at uh, 330. That's mm -hmm. what we call in economics trade-offs. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to say something about these ladies because generally the people that I interview on my podcast are, are either teachers, but a lot of times I have these student guests on. And I put these guests on the spot. Uh, ladies, these kids are, you know, between 10 and 18 years old. And I always ask them what they're going to be doing on their 30th birthday, and they have to, they have to lay <laughs> out their plan. So I'm going to do it for you folks in reverse. I'm going to ask you to uh, – Explain where you are, explain what you do, and explain how you got there. And just give me about a minute apiece. Go ahead, Megan. Great. Well, thanks. Um, my name is Megan Smith, and as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Rhode Island College. Um, I've been in the United States for all of my training. So I, um, I did my bachelor's degree at Purdue University in Indiana, so another a Big Ten um, I then went to Washington University in St. Louis for my master's and back to Purdue for my PhD. And then I spent one year on faculty at Utah State University Eastern, which is a teeny tiny little college associated with the main Utah State campus, but it's situated in um, central eastern Utah, where the population is about 10,000 people. <laughs> and I, I moved there randomly for a tenure track uh, position right out of grad school. And I, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. It wasn't my absolute dream job, but it was a very good job for right out of graduate school. And I ended up actually really enjoying myself. And I, I met um, the the guy who became my fiance and he moved <laughs> here with me and he works for Brown University now doing their um, summer programs. And I'm at Rhode Island College. So we've been here for about two years. Out of all the places, I, go ahead. Oh, out, yeah. out of all the places you've lived, what's your favorite? 
Ooh, that's tricky. Um, I, I have very fond memories of Utah because I met my future husband <laughs> there and we spent all of this time traveling. It was really unique. Um, but I actually grew up north of Chicago, and I think Chicago and the East Coast Providence have, have been my absolute favorite. Good answer. So you're happy. Yeah. You're, you're, you're in yeah, the right spot. Yeah, very happy. Very happy, yeah. Carolina. Yeah, we're about it. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. So, yeah, my research focuses primarily on retrieval practice, and mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how we can improve meaningful learning in the classroom from young kids all the way up through university. Megan, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Carolina, you got to follow that act. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, my name is Carolina Kuper-Tetzel, and uh, I'm an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Dundee in Scotland. From training, I'm a cognitive psychologist, and I did my PhD at the University of Mannheim, that's in Germany. Mm-hmm. And later, I did two postdocs, one at York University in Toronto, Canada, and another one at Washington University in St. Louis. My PhD thesis was on space practice, which is one of the most important learning principles from cognitive psychology. And in my current position that I um, started in November 2015, I see my main goal in um, researching learning strategies that can be potentially applied to real-world classrooms and communicating these and other findings to educators and students across sectors. Oh, that's beautiful. And I have to ask you two questions. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in Germany. I was born in Brazil, but um, I grew up in Germany (laughs) and uh, did all my education training uh, until the PhD there. And um, since then, I have been pretty much uh, U.S., Canada, and now in Scotland. Beautiful. Do you dream in German or English? Um, in German. <laughs> That's beautiful. And then how did you meet Megan? I met um, Megan through Jana, actually. So I met Jana through Twitter. <laughs> and then um, we started talking and Jana came to the UK for a workshop in fall 2016 and asked me whether I would um, do the workshop with her together with her. Mm-hmm. And um, then we started talking and so on, and we started talking, and then basically the, the rest is history. Beautiful. Excellent. Now, the reason I – there's a number of reasons why I asked these ladies on. I'm so impressed with what they've done, and we're going to get into that momentarily. But they're here to help educators, and their website is awesome and if you use it it will enrich your class it will help your students dramatically and it's free it's right there and it's available to everyone so that's my commercial for what your folks are doing so let's get into some specifics either one of you why was the idea for learning scientists hatched and that's the name of their group how was it hatched how was it birthed what took place well, I can I can address that. So I think first I probably have to explain who Yana and Cindy are, just very briefly. Um, so Yana Weinstein, um, she is um, she is currently a professor at University of Massachusetts Lowell. But I originally met her at Washington University in St. Louis, and all four of us actually have a connection to WashU in St. Louis, although that's not entirely the reason we all ended up together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was doing my master's there, and Yana was a postdoc 
there working in the same lab. And I knew Yana. She was, um, you know, a person who was higher up in the food chain than me, and she would help me some. And we were friends. We were friendly, but we weren't overly close. We weren't really good friends like we are now. Um, And at the same time, Cindy Wooldridge was also a graduate student a couple years ahead of me uh, in Dr. Mark McDaniel's lab at Washington University. Yana and I worked with Roddy Rodiger. And Cindy and Carolina have both both worked with Mark McDaniel. And so we've all been there at some point in time. And so we've heard each other's names. We even met each other, some of us. Uh, but we weren't all super close to one another. It's not that we didn't like each other. We just <laughs> didn't happen to be <laughs> very close friends. Um, but uh, somewhat recently, in January of 2016, it feels like a really long time ago, but it actually mm-hmm. wasn't even two years ago, um, Yana had been listening to NPR And she was really impressed um, about how some researchers were really getting the word of their research out there and were doing outreach activities. And she started to feel kind of guilty, actually. She said that um, she felt like she was doing all of this research and that the research really had the potential to impact education. And yet what we tend to do in our field is write journal articles and publish them. And we have to do that in order to keep Mm -hmm. our jobs. (laughs) But but. These journal articles are behind paywalls, and they're very difficult to read. We had to spend years of training learning all of these different nuances. Certainly, all teachers can't go and get their PhDs in research, just like all researchers can't also you know, quit their jobs and become teachers. So we really felt like there needs to be a synergy there. And so she started feeling guilty, and she didn't really know what to do about it. She went on Twitter and started searching for students who were having trouble studying for exams and just started tweeting advice at them. She was just sort of a random adult saying, hey, try this, hey, do that. Um, And at the same time, I was creating an assignment for my students in cognitive psychology with a similar aim, actually. I was trying to um, teach my students how cognitive psychology applied to the real world, and the assignment involved you know, creating little clips of information, just little blurbs to try and explain um, cognitive psychology principles to the general public. The assignment was actually sort of a disaster. But in the process of doing that, I saw Yana tweeting to these random students and asked her what she was doing. And she told me about it. And I said, well, that sounds fun. I'll, I'll join. This is, you know, late at night. I was like in bed getting ready to go to sleep and on my phone tweeting at these students with Yana. Mm-hmm. And very shortly after, I think it was even by the next day, we said, you know, we actually need our own our own Twitter handle. We can't we can't just use our own accounts. It was bogging my account down and I needed right. my account specifically for this assignment with my students. So we created Ace That Test. It just sort of we sort of made it up on the fly. The goal was just to sort of attract students and, you know, tell students how to study and and learn information for their exams. Of course, we're about way more than just, quote unquote, acing a test. But the Twitter handle came very spontaneously. And um, about two weeks of Twitter and sort of trying to figure out what this project might look like. My fiance actually um, suggested that we create a website and said, you know, Twitter is great because you can have conversations with people, but you need something that is a little bit more static and a place to write about some of these things where it's going to to live. Because, you know, with Twitter, it just sort of goes away after a while. It would be very difficult to find the information later on. He helped us create the website, and then things sort of snowballed from there. 
after a couple months, Cindy approached us and said, I loved, I love what the two of you are doing. I'd love to join the project. How can I get, get, get involved? So Cindy was our third member. And then a couple months after that, Yana was in the UK doing those workshops with Carolina. And that's how Carolina joined the team. I want to give you a big vote of confidence on that because I will tell you that for K-12 teachers, I'm not talking about college professors. Our, our days are a blur. We are we, we face an avalanche of students, about 150 every day, and it's a seven-period day. And so we need resources like this that are easy to get to and easy to use. So if you were looking to provide something to the K-12 teaching audience that is impactful, that, that website is exactly the right decision. Thank you. <laughs> and then uh, – Tell me what the mission is of Learning Scientists now that we have the idea that you have this very user-friendly website. Yeah, so I can do that. So we see the mission of the Learning Scientists and the website um, as three different goals. So Mm -hmm. the first one is communicating evidence-based learning principles to teachers and students. Right. The the second one is to provide hands-on materials that facilitates implementation of these learning principles. Right. And the third one would be to be a general resource for questions regarding learning and teaching for everyone. Very good. And so, for for example, as evidence to the... Um, to the last goal that we have. On our website now, we feature a FAQ page, this very brand new, where we answer people's questions. And we also have set up a Twitter chat that takes place once a month where we answer questions too. I bet that's populated. <laughs> yeah, but we did it only once, but it's happening again next week on uh, July 19th. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, what, oh, let's see. July. I will have this episode out by then, and I will advertise that on the show notes. Yeah. And Great. I love, yeah. The, the hashtag is LRN SCI oh, yeah. chat. Okay. I'll put that on the show notes. And I like what you write on your website. It says, we aim to motivate students to study, increase the use of effective study and teaching strategies that are backed by research, and decrease negative views about testing and this is not a product or a sales pitch. This is just science. That's beautiful, ladies. Thank you. Okay, now um, you have six strategies that you – and it's kind of interesting because I listened to Megan speak five weeks ago. And then I was going to speak to you here uh, – this is a couple of days ago. I thought, oh, my gosh, i got to get ready for this interview. So I used a lot of the tactics that you promote – to prepare myself to talk to you this morning. And one thing that you can do when you go to their website is there's an eight-minute overview of all of their six strategies, and, and I love that overview, and everyone's got eight minutes. Come on, man. You can watch this for eight minutes and then decide to, to jump in, and I think that that's exactly what you'll do. So here's the six, and, and, and stop me at any time, ladies. You have spaced practice, interleaving, elaboration, concrete examples, dual coding, and retrieval practice. Now, if you think of those six, let's focus on two. Maybe Megan take one and Carolina take one. Two that uh, two that you think are very impactful for this conversation. 
Yeah, so uh, the two most important of these six strategies are retrieval practice and space practice. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason these two are the most important is because they have the most evidence to back them up. And they also are, at least in my opinion, the most easily applicable across different subjects or different domains. So some of the strategies like dual coding or elaboration are very, very good in specific contexts. They might work really well with um, students who maybe have a little bit more expertise. They're not brand new novices. So in the case of elaboration, you need to know a little bit about the topic before you can really dive in. But space practice and retrieval practice can be used across the board. I should mention that these six strategies weren't pulled at random and across at least a century of evidence for some of these strategies. In fact, it's 2017 right now, and the first retrieval practice paper, at least the first one that I know of, was published in 1917. So we're at our 100-year anniversary for retrieval mm-hmm. practice. Um, they, cognitive psychologists have gone back and looked over the evidence from a century of research and identified these six as having the most uh, evidence to back them up and the most utility in the classrooms. But then even among these six, we can say the two that are kind of key, the key, key strategies are retrieval practice and space practice. So I'll explain retrieval practice. This gets at this idea of trying to reduce negative views about testing, because essentially retrieval practice is what you do when you take a test. A lot of times teachers and college professors and students think of tests as a measurement opportunity. We're assessing learning. We're measuring it. We're not doing anything to it to change it. We're just seeing where we are when we take a test or even just a practice test. But actually, the research suggests and and tells us quite strongly that when you retrieve information like you do when you take a test, you're changing that information in really important ways. And you're making it more durable and it makes it easier for you to remember it later on and also use it flexibly and apply it in new situations later on. So the key here is just to have the students put their class materials away. So close the book, put the notes away, and just have them try to write or sketch everything that they know about a topic. That's beautiful, man. I I loved it when you explained this in the uh, PD. Yeah, and for older students, like high school students, college students, or students that have um, a lot of experience with a particular topic, it's as simple as that, just putting the materials away and helping them bring the information to mind. Practice tests are great, but really anything that promotes retrieval of information is going to be useful. So the students can create concept maps from memory, which requires them to retrieve information, or they can um, try to answer specific prompts or even teach one another different uh, aspects of the topic. Anything that gets them to bring the information to mind without looking at it in front of them is going to be helpful. Okay, Megan. Now with do you mind if I ask a question here? Yes, so, please do. So you're doing the retrieval practice. You're starting this out in your classroom, regardless of whether it's at the college level or the K-12 level. And I'm sure you face this. You look at the young person and they're like, I got nothing. I, I'm, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't do it. How do you respond? Well, actually, this happened when I was in graduate school. I started doing research with fourth graders when I was in my Ph.D. program with my advisor, um, Dr. Jeff Carpicky. 
And we went into these fourth grade classrooms thinking, well, as long as we use the materials from fourth grade textbooks, we'll be fine, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to ask them to try and recall college level information, but surely we can ask them to recall fourth grade level information. We consulted with their teachers. Their teachers gave us material from their textbooks. We were using material that they hadn't learned yet, but would be learning very near in the future. So it was, it was relevant for them in terms of their um, their days in the classroom. And then also it was supposed to be the right level. We had them read through the information. The research assistant even read it out loud. The kids followed along. And then we gave them the blank sheet of paper. And essentially what happened is there was a lot, a whole lot of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, one kid actually colored with marker um, on on their hand and then stamped their hand on the page and it turned into this big, they had to go to the bathroom. Um, there was a whole lot of that sort of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Some of the kids would say, well, this passage was about stars, but I'm going to tell you about my cat. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. And essentially, when we score these to see how much the students actually retrieved for the research, um, we score it by idea units. So we say, how many of the ideas from the text did the students produce? And on average, they produced about two. Mm-hmm. And even the kid that said this passage was about stars, but I'm going to tell you about my cat, gets one idea unit for saying star. Mm-hmm. So you can see that's the average. It didn't go very well. And, you know, in hindsight, of course, it didn't go very well. <laughs> that That's a really difficult thing for, for students yeah. to do. And fourth graders are transitioning from learning to read to reading to learn. And so this it was just too much. So... We went back to the drawing board and we thought, okay, these kids are not fundamentally different. Retrieving information cognitively should do something for them. We just have to figure out a way to scale it. So we actually designed some scaffolded activities where we would give the kids a a text to read and then a little baby concept map. I have a blog on the website about this. It's about um, helping elementary students practice retrieval. And we actually let them use the text first, gave them sort of an open book assignment And then we would take their books away and say, okay, now try to retrieve it again. From there, success during retrieval practice went up and learning actually improved from retrieval practice now that we were able to scaffold. I'm so glad I asked that question because I know the way a lot of K-12 teachers think. And when you started uh, talking about that, I, I imagine some of them were thinking, oh, geez, my kids wouldn't write anything. So you need to... Uh, prime the pump, so to speak, with some activities that are on your website that will help kids switch into this uh, expressive mode. Yeah, we definitely need more research on retrieval practice for the younger kids, and that seems to be the direction that the different labs are going. It is very difficult to do uh, research in the classrooms with elementary school children. It's very expensive. And even if you forget about the expenses for a minute, it does take time out of their day. We don't want to just go into the classroom and start doing things and we don't know it's going to work. But we're pretty confident now, and so we can go into classrooms and start doing these types of things, and it it seems to work pretty well. We're also really hoping that by introducing this idea of retrieval practice and practice tests early on, that some of the testing that is much higher stakes and is a bit, you know, it's scary, some of the standardized stuff, maybe won't seem quite as bad because it's just going to be like what they've been practicing the whole time. Okay. Now we talked about retrieval practice and uh, let's talk now about space practice. Exactly. So the second most important um, learning strategy that we have on our website and that has the most evidence 
uh, accumulated the most evidence over the years is space practice. It's actually one of the oldest findings in cognitive psychology that has been proven over and over again to be a successful way to remember knowledge for a long period of time. It is a finding that distributing learning sessions in which previously learned material is revised is better for remembering than cramming the same amount of study time into a single session, say the day and night before the exam. Mm -hmm. So the beauty about space practice is that it works for a range of different domains. So for text learning, for conceptual learning, for motor learning, or for learning how to play the piano. And it works in different age groups. It has been shown for preschoolers, for younger children, for um, <clears throat> children in secondary school, um, school um, for adults and older adults as well. And it works for different subjects, for mass learning, for foreign language acquisition and biology and so on. And so... And for me, most importantly, it is an easy-to-use strategy because it simply requires scheduling study and revision sessions at the beginning of the academic year and while sticking to them. Mm -hmm. And so there, I think, again, what comes back in order for this to become a successful strategy and a strategy that students hopefully use in their self-regulated learning is that some scaffolding takes place uh, by teachers, for example. So if teachers use the strategies in their classroom by revising material that is older in a specific class, students see what's, what's happening and they tend then to revise that material at that point in time too, which again creates space practice. You know, one thing that I was really taken by when I, when I watched the video, when I listened to Megan speak uh, last month, in regard to space practice, for K-12 teachers, we can incorporate this into our week. Uh, mm -hmm. College students are a little, uh, the curriculum is more compressed. Uh, there's more independence there. But for K-12ers, we can actually implement this and demonstrate this and mandate that they do this in class, which is an advantage we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, one of the things – oh, I'm sorry. Can I just add? Um, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I, I think is really important with students that are younger um, and college students is to remind them that this is really hard to do. It's difficult to schedule, mm -hmm. you know, schedule study sessions in advance and then stick to that schedule. Adults have a hard time, you know, planning things in advance and sticking to that schedule. Um, and so it's not kids versus adults here. It's, it's very much so that it's just difficult for humans in general. And so to the extent that the students can, um, as they're trying to become more independent, really have support to schedule these things and encouragement from their teachers and, and a reminder that, yes, it's difficult, but this is really important. I think that can help, too. Carolina, I have, I have yeah, to plus, I, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that one because I think what Megan says is it makes a very important point. Even um, older students who uh, are in year two or year three in their studies, they actually need someone to tell them exactly how to apply yeah. those strategies. And so, for example, here at the University of Dundee, what I did last semester, I went to give a workshop to um, level two students, so students in their second year in the School of Life Sciences. And it was a one-hour um, workshop where I actually 
try to explain to them how to use space practice and I had them all open their calendar and plan and schedule revision sessions for the next three weeks, the three weeks before the exam. Very good. And so they actually did this right there and they actually had no excuse not to do it. <laughs> I, have to, I have to tell you a great story, Carolina. I was, uh, I practiced space practice by accident in college. I was, uh, in a fraternity, and I had one of the highest GPAs in the fraternity, and I'm not more intelligent than other people by a long <laughs> shot, but the day before a test, I never studied, and that always just shocked my fraternity brothers. They were like, how can you not study for the test? Well, I did it in small increments over the mm -hmm. last week, and so the party that they ended up going to anyway. <laughs> and we all ended up going to, they didn't do well on the test the next day, but I did. Not that I'm <laughs> saying that you should drink before you take a test. <laughs> so, uh, ladies, I love what you're saying. Your website. Oh, your website. You know, sometimes, like I was talking about before, sometimes the idea of reading a scholarly journal is not nearly as compelling and engaging as visiting a website with videos and examples. I mean, let's be real here. And so that's what I love about your website. How can a listener maximize your website's potential? Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. Even as a researcher and a scholar, sometimes I have a really hard time getting through journal articles. Some are better than others, but it is very daunting. And um, the, the training definitely helps, but... I think having these digestible formats is, is fantastic, even for people who um, are researchers, but in a different field, say biology or chemistry, for them to be able to look at these things to inform their teaching and their college classrooms. Uh, we have my fiance, Sam Samaraki, to thank for the website design. He really helped us make sure it was nice and clean and easy to use on the homepage. The top has a video where Yana and I just briefly describe what it is that we're doing on the website and what the project is all about. And then below that video, there are five tiles. And the tiles are meant to bring you to different places within the website where you can find information in different formats. The first one is about us. So if you don't like the video format, you can click the About Us tile and read about us there. But the other four are about content. We have downloadable materials which are where you'll find the posters, PowerPoints, even bookmarks and stickers for some of the younger kids or maybe older kids, too. Um, and I like stickers. They, yeah, <laughs> stickers are great. It's actually Yana's idea. And the bookmarks were Carolina's idea. Okay. Uh, so there you'll find some very brief, compact descriptions of these strategies. The posters, for example, are designed to be engaging. There's not a ton of text on them, and they have little diagrams and sketches to depict what it is that we're explaining so that they're not just boring, you know, walls of text. So you did some dual coding. We did, actually. And Oliver, <laughs> yeah. Oliver Caviglioli is the person who's been helping us with the yeah. design, and he is just absolutely fantastic. Um, I just, I've spoken with him a lot over Skype over the last year and a half, but I just met him in England and watched him give a talk on dual coding and he's, he's amazing. Um, so he did the designing, um, in terms of the visuals for the materials. We also have the blog, which is dynamic, but the information stays. So you can search the archive if you want to find information on a specific topic like retrieval practice or creativity, some of our readers follow the most recent posts. 
We publish three a week. One of them is a weekly digest where we put together five external resources about a specific topic, for example, digital literacy, uh, mindset, using dual coding in the classroom. The second post of the week is a post by a guest blogger, so a teacher, a student, another researcher, someone bringing an outside perspective because, of course, we're not experts in everything. And then the third post of the week that comes out on Thursdays is a blog written by one of the four of us. So you can follow the new posts or subscribe to get the post in your inbox, or you can go to the archive and search for specific topics. We have categories, tags, and then you can just straight search the blog as well. Here's the what final. I, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. You, you, you continue. The final two tiles are videos and frequently asked questions. The videos tile contains one overview video, which you mentioned, and then one brief video for each of the six strategies where Yana and I make fools of ourselves in the name of science. (laughs) And then um, the frequently asked questions is a new feature where we're going to continuously update based on questions we're asked all the time, just simply because we get a lot of questions over and over again, and it's becoming a really big task to answer all of the interested students and teachers. We love doing it, but we decided it really needed to be somewhere on the website, and so we created the Frequently Asked Questions page. Excellent. Carolina, do you want to add anything to that? Nope. That was everything that's important to know about the potential of the website. That's great. Well, here's what (laughs) I want to say about your website, and this is the way I'm going to utilize it this fall is uh, you have a video, a short video, on each of the six strategies. And before we do that strategy, I'm going to assign those brief vi- uh, videos to my students so they can watch what I'm trying to do. They, they can understand <laughs> what it is I'm trying to accomplish with them. That's incredibly helpful. And then my final question to uh, you wonderful ladies is give a teacher who's worried about student success, one piece of advice on how they can teach tomorrow's lesson. Okay, so I would say the teacher would go into class and surprise the students with a 10-minute quiz. And in the quiz, um, the teacher can include material from the class um, of the day before, but also order material. So this way you have actually combined to the two strategies that we talked about today, retrieval practice and space practice. Mm-hmm. And important is um, that students get feedback on their answers. And so you could have this as two stages. So in the first stage, you have um, students in groups of two discuss and try to find the answers to the questions themselves by looking um, through their material and discussing. And then make sure at the very end to end the exercise by giving um, the correct feedback. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and another another thing that um, teachers can do is give spaced homework. So rather than assigning homework on the topic that they've most recently taught, which seems to be the norm, and I I used to substitute teach actually, so I don't know everything about the K through twelve classroom, but I did know how to assign homework when I was doing the substitute teaching, and it always seemed like the homework really was mostly about the stuff um, from that particular day. One thing the teachers can do is chop up the homework so that some of the information is from class today or class yesterday, but much of the homework is actually over older material. This provides spacing without having to completely redo lesson plans during the day. You can just chop up the homework and utilize spacing 
in the students' time in the evenings. Megan, that's brilliant. I've never thought of doing that. What the heck? Thank you. <laughs> I, I have to credit. So that's also Yana's idea. We sort of come, come up with things in a synergistic way. And so I can't take full credit. Well, you can take partial credit. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, ladies, it's been wonderful talking to you. I, I, you're busy people, man. I'm not busy. I'm on summer vacation. I'm not doing anything, man. So the fact that you took some time and talked to me means a lot. And uh, you're doing good work. I mean, this is, this is the beauty of modern education is you don't have to spend $100 to buy a book. You can go online and look at the Learning Scientist website for $0. That's cool. Yes, thank you. We love talking with teachers and students, so we really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. So here we are at the What You Can Do Tomorrow section, and job one is to go to learningscientist.org and explore that website. Watch the videos. Explore the six strategies. I know you'll find something that you're going to use. Also for tomorrow, why don't you try a retrieval exercise in your class? And again, Go to the website for some ideas. And then the second thing I'd like you to try is try a spaced practice activity in for tomorrow's lesson. Think how awesome it would be if the learning scientist helped your students develop some academic confidence. That's the potential of delving into this website and delving into these strategies. Good luck tomorrow engaging your students. Show notes for this episode can be found at jamesallensternivant.com. If you enjoy hacking engagement, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes.